0: I began with a story about a young woman preparing for her wedding, determined to let nothing dampen her excitement, not even her parents' nasty divorce. She was very close to her mother, and so they went out to shop so that her mother could find that perfect dress to wear to the wedding. And they found it, and they were delighted. She said, Mama, you are going to be the best-dressed, prettiest mother of the bride Ever. Well, a week later, the young bride-to-be was horrified to learn that her father's new young wife had bought the exact same dress. Now, this would not bother guys, but apparently to women that is a big deal. And so she went to uh, her father's new young wife and asked her to get a different dress, but she refused, saying, I look like a million bucks in that dress, and I plan to wear it. So the mother stepped in and said, "'Sweetheart, don't worry. This is your day. It is not my day. I will go and get a different dress.'" So they went out shopping again, and they did find another dress that looked very nice. And afterwards, they went to lunch, and she said, "'Mama, I guess you will want to return your first dress. You don't really have another occasion to wear it to, do you?' And her mother smiled and said, "'Oh, yes, I do, dear. I plan to wear it to the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding.'" We enjoy stories like that and jokes like that that take a person that has been, at least in our opinion, unjustly treated and they turn the tables. We like those bitterness masked as justice stories, don't we? And I'll tell you why. It's because there is a little bit of the elder brother spirit that lives in all of us. And that's the spirit that Jesus is trying to address in the greatest story ever. Now, we call it the story of the prodigal son, and it is about a prodigal, but the story is for a Pharisee. You see, Jesus took a lot of flack for hanging out with prodigals. In fact, chapter 15 begins with this accusation from Pharisees and religious leaders. Why do you hang out with the kind of company you hang out with? We have written those people off as sinners and worthless. You shouldn't be partying with them. And so Jesus tells these three stories in chapter 15 to try to communicate to them how God feels about the people they are trying to avoid. And God wants the good to know. That he does not view the bad as ugly. But understand that primarily this story, the greatest story ever, was told for the benefit of people who think they are good. That what Jesus is really trying to do is touch the heart of the other brother. So look with me. In chapter 15, you know that the first boy, the prodigal, has come home. The father has raced out to greet him. He's thrown a big party in his honor. And now we finish the story. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and, notice, not demanded, not even ordered or commanded, but pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. Was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Feel that story for a second. We typically think the story of the prodigal son is a happy story. It's really a sad story. And it ends on a sad note with a very angry young man willing to disgrace his father because of his perceived sense of justice. Why was he so mad? Let's explore that for a moment. I'm going to suggest first, because he didn't, like the Pharisees and like Jesus' critics, he didn't care about the lost. Now, it's easy to brand him as a self-righteous prig. But before you go there, remember something. You can only grow self-righteous righteousness in the soil of a community that values righteousness if people don't care about righteousness if they don't care about morality if they don't care about God it's very hard for people to be self-righteous okay I mean think about us aren't we concerned about the moral decline we see in this country Aren't you concerned about how the movies and the culture constantly call okay what the Bible calls sin and the impact that that is having on young people? It's only when you value righteousness that self-righteousness can grow. Because here's the thing, it's a very short and often blind step from grieving Moral decline to claiming moral superiority. It's a short step, and it's often a blind step, from being so disappointed that society has such poor values to being very smug about how good your values are. You see, Jesus' critics didn't murmur because they were bad. They murmured because they were good. And good people tend to want to see bad people judged more than saved. This other brother was good. Don't forget that. If he wasn't a good boy, there wouldn't have been a farm for the other son to come back to. Who was running things while he was off partying in the far country? Who was planting the fields? Who was bringing in the harvest? Who was taking care of the old man? If he hadn't been good, the younger boy would have had no place to come back to. His reaction was totally consistent with his theology. People are either good, and therefore they're valuable, or people are bad, and therefore they're worthless. And why should you care about what's bad and worthless? That's really what the critics were asking Jesus. And Jesus comes along and he gives this totally radically new understanding of righteousness. He says, you see people as either some are good and valuable and some are bad and worthless. And I say all people are bad and valuable. A totally new paradigm. There was this uh, Miami investment firm recently that was doing some remodeling. They called Goodwill to haul off some stuff they didn't want anymore, including, let me show you this picture of this statue. He said, get that out of here, we don't even know what it is. So Goodwill took it off, and someone at Goodwill did a little research on the internet, and they found out the statue was created by a very well-known American sculptor named Sterrett Giddings Kelsey. I can't even pronounce the name of the statue, but it's got only ten like it in the whole world, and they're each valued at about $500,000 apiece. So they called the company back and said, Do you want credit for a $500,000 tax deduction? And they said, "Um, Maybe we think we would like it back. They had no idea what they were throwing away. That's what Jesus was trying to say. You have no idea the value God has placed on the people you want to discard. You see, that elder brother didn't want his brother back because he didn't think he was worth it. He didn't care about the loss, but I'll tell you what he did care about was the cost. Now think with me for a second. Dad's throwing a big party. Who's footing the bill for it? Remember, everything left in that family's diminished wealth was supposed to belong to the older brother. Baby brother has already taken his part of the estate and blown it. So now if dad's throwing a party for baby brother, who's it coming out of? Whose pocket's paying for it? And he's thinking to himself, he's already blown his part. Now you're going to let him come back to the family. You're going to return his status as son and heir of what's left and let him start blowing my part? You see, forgiveness always comes at a price. Now, the secularist will deny what I just said. The secularist will tell us that we're all just pawn scum after a few billion years of evolution. That your values are no better than anybody else's because we're all just going back to the dirt. And nobody's values really have any eternal significance. And therefore, forgiveness is a foolish concept to begin with. Nobody owes anybody anything. The problem... Is that in each of us there is this innate sense of justice. This sense that sometimes people do wrong and they owe somebody something. And if there's going to be reconciliation, somebody has got to pay a price. So the secularist says forgiveness is free. The moralist is right. The moralist says no, forgiveness is costly. But the moralist is wrong. Because it usually doesn't want to bear the burden. And to this older brother, it wasn't worth the cost. I don't want to pay the price for reconciliation. But what did it cost him to stay angry? It cost him a soured soul. It cost him missed joy. And it came at the price of becoming a cause for his father to continue grieving. Because now his father has another lost son. The older boy became a prodigal. And he never left home. See, I want you to see again. This story ends on a sad note. Why? Well, I think Jesus is trying to say it's sad because people like that older boy constantly want to replace Goodness for grace. Hear me again. This is a good boy. He would have easily made deacon down at the local synagogue. He was nominated outstanding young men of Israel. He's the kind of boy you hope your daughter meets when she goes off to college. But his goodness had become a bigger barrier to a relationship with his father than his little brother's badness had been. He was estranged from his father, not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. And Jesus is saying, do you see how sad this is? When you have a father that is full of grace. And you're willing to disgrace him. Because you are determined to live your life by the goodness grid. And you pay a, such a high price for it. Let's be honest. A lot of us have been older brothers. We have lived most of our life by the goodness grid. And think about what it's cost us. It's one reason we become so judgmental. Because people are failing to measure up to the standards of our particular grid. And one thing I've learned, by the way, everyone's grid's different. Your grid is not her grid, and her grid is not my grid. So it doesn't matter. I always am able to find someone to look down on. But it's not just that we become judgmental, we become angry. Because the good life that we think we've lived doesn't always result in the good life we think we've deserved. So we get mad. Now, we've learned how to put on religious makeup and not let you know we're mad. But we're mad. Externally, we're very moral and good. Internally, we're bitter at our parents and we're bitter at church. And we're bitter at God. Because I deserve to have a better life than I've gotten because I've been good. And so we become judgmental and we become angry. And maybe most of all, we become anxious. Because contentment's always based on achievement and acceptance is always dependent on performance. This boy's so upset that he never got a party. And dad says, everything I got you have, why haven't you had a party? You know why he's never thrown himself a party? He doesn't think he deserves it. He's not sure he's earned a party. He's not sure where he stands with his father, even while he's quick to tell other people where they stand. And this is the greatest sadness of living your life by the goodness grid. It's not just that you're a judgmental person, that you're quick to anger. But you live your life, even as you're judging where other people stand with God. Not sure where you stand yourself. Let me show you this picture. This man died just last February in Austin. His name is Noble Doss. One of the greatest football players in the history of the University of Texas. That catch you see him making is considered one of the greatest in the history of that university. It was in 1940. It was the only touchdown against uh, the then undefeated Aggies. He went on to uh, play in the professional football leagues. He went on to uh, make the Texas High School Hall of Fame, the University of Texas Football Hall of Fame. Noble Doss was a great football player and a good man. Served his country in the Navy during World War II. Married to the same woman for over 60 years. Built a successful insurance business and was a respected citizen citizen. That's what most people remember him for, but that's not what Noble Doss remembers. 1941. Texas is number one in the country. They're playing Baylor University. They're ahead seven to nothing. It's late in the game. The quarterback throws a pass. He's behind everybody. Nothing but 20 yards of grass between him and the goal line. The pass is perfect, it's right in his hands. And he dropped it. Baylor came back to score a touchdown at the end of the game. The game was tied. Texas lost their number one ranking and their chance to go to the Rose Bowl and be national champions. Noble Doss said, I remembered that play every day for the rest of my life. Fifty years later, when he met the new football coach at the University of Texas, you know what he told him about? The day he dropped the ball. And he began to cry. That is the biggest sadness. Of living your life. By the goodness grid. You're forever haunted by the memory. Of the times you dropped the ball. And I'm looking at a sea of good people. And every one of you has dropped the ball. And how do we cope? If you're living by the goodness grid, there's only one way to cope with the memory that you dropped the ball. You have to find someone who's dropped it more than you have and stare at them. And that's what elder brothers do. That's what Pharisees do. And it's sad. Sad because they replace goodness for grace and they embrace only the deserving. You see, the younger brother sinned against his sonship by his unrighteousness. We know that. But the older brother sinned against his sonship by his self-righteousness. He thought sonship was earned and it could be forfeited. He wouldn't even claim his brother. Did you notice that in verse 30? He said, this son of yours. And daddy shot right back, verse 32, and put them both in their place, their rightful place. He said, no, this brother... Of yours. Because wherever God has a child, you've got a brother or sister. See, the goodness grid is effective in determining who's deserving. But the grace grid declares that all of us are undeserving. See, I think that's what Jesus was hitting at. Remember those first two stories about the lost sheep, the lost coin? And they both end with this line. So there's more rejoicing in heaven over one person that repents than over 99 people that don't need to repent. Do you really think that only 1% of society needs to repent? Do you really think those 99 people don't need to repent? Jesus is speaking right to the Pharisee's heart. That's one thing about younger brothers. They know they dropped the ball. It's the older brothers. Who won't admit it? This past week, I had a great great privilege. I went to uh, preach Wednesday afternoon at the ladies' jail in downtown Fort Worth. We had a packed house, more than we were supposed to have in there. And so I just preached on the story of the prodigal son. And something happened that I wasn't prepared for. You see, all my life, I have preached this story to audiences like this, comprised of basically good people. Wednesday, I preached to a room of women who knew they hadn't been good. And it's amazing how people hear this story when they know they've dropped the ball. Do you remember three weeks ago I told you the story about the lady that bought the new mattress and threw the old one of her mothers out on the street because she said it was old and worthless and really there was a million dollars in it? And the point is that what we want to throw away and say is worthless, God says is valuable. We heard that story and nodded our heads and said, that's a good point. I told that story Wednesday and the whole room began to cry. They heard a completely different application. You mean I'm valuable? Because I've never been told that. It makes a total difference how you hear the greatest story ever. If you think you're good, or if you know you're in desperate need of grace, I would hope that we would want to be a church filled with younger brothers and sisters, because we know we're all in desperate need of grace. In fact, I would hope that we would run to welcome them. You see, in my opinion, it was the brother that should have been running down that road to meet his brother. The father went because the brother wouldn't. I thought about all this last summer. When I was at a conference and I heard a speaker who's a friend of mine and there were six or seven thousand people in this room and I was frankly stunned by his vulnerability because he, he was talking about the greatest pain of his life and he said it was one of his sons who had strayed far away from the Lord. He had a prodigal. He lived on one coast. His son lived all the way across the country on the other coast and he said this to the crowd. He said every Today I pray that next Sunday my son will wake up and decide to visit a church. And that when he walks in the door, somebody will meet him and hug him. Now if you think that's convicting, what he said next was even more. He said, and then I realized that every Sunday... Some young person walks into the church where I preach whose mama and daddy have been praying that exact same prayer and I haven't been looking for him. The story ends with the father pleading With the other brother. In fact, that word plead is the word that Jesus will use later to talk about the Holy Spirit. And so what I want us to do right now is ask the Spirit of God to show us if we have any older brother residue in our hearts. So would you just bow your heads for a moment. And I just want you to pray this prayer. Lord, would your sweet Holy Spirit show me the hidden places of my heart where I have an older brother spirit. Please pray that right now. And Father, I pray now, I pray that you would forgive us, not for wanting to be good, but for all the times our goodness got in the way of your mission. Forgive us in Jesus' name, amen. One more thing. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad Jesus is my older brother. I don't need an older brother like this boy. I need an older brother that will forgive me for every time I drop the ball. I need an older brother who is helping me get home, not fighting my return. The secularist says forgiveness is free. And the moralist says, no, forgiveness is costly. And my older brother Jesus says it's both. It's costly. But I'm willing to pay the price so that it's free for you. And so he's paid the price. And there's going to be a grand homecoming. There's a wonderful story about Desmond Tutu, Nobel Prize winner from South Africa. During the final days of apartheid, he's holding this rally against the practice. And the government shuts it down, so the people go with him inside St. George's Cathedral, and he begins to preach. And the soldiers come in, into a, a house of God with guns and bayonets, willing to break the thing up. And he looks right at the soldiers, and he begins to preach to them. And he says, the practice you support with your guns is wrong. And he says, now you are powerful. You are very powerful. But you're not more powerful than God. And God will not be mocked. And you have already lost. And then he gets down from behind the pulpit, and he starts to jump up and down and bounce and smile and says, and since you've already lost why don't you come join the winning side? And the people stood up and began to clap and dance. Now listen, folks, the critics are saying to Jesus, don't hang out with those kind of people. He says, you don't get it. You're powerful and you're strong. And you decide who's in and who's out. But I am telling you, you're wrong. And God will not be mocked. And there is going to be a party. And it's going to be for every tribe and every tongue. And everybody's invited. And you can't stop it. So why don't you come join the party? It's the greatest story ever. And you've been invited. Don't be an older brother and miss the party. Would you all stand up, please? We're going to sing the greatest hymn ever. And if you need to be baptized, would you come down to the front right now while we worship?